0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ideology. Uh, Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman, as always, and we are in week two in a uh, look at prayer and its implications for us as believers in our current cultural context, looking at some theological distinctions on prayer. So if you're just now joining us, if this is your first episode of Ideology, recommend backtracking one episode and catching last week's installment as a kickoff to a few weeks on prayer. And last week we did look at questions of why do we pray, what happens when we pray, how do we begin to theologically make sense of prayer. We looked at five perspectives on prayer and how to not become reductionistic when we think about prayer and some of the kind of the theological intellectual complexities and some of the mystery behind prayer. And so definitely go back and take a listen if you haven't already. Uh, and this week, we're going to look at some further theological reflections on prayer and before I kick it over to you, Drew, I'll just say, I think this this dovetails well with the broader themes of our podcast when we look back at you know some of our early episodes on the two main mental maps, the two main worldviews that we have in our culture today in the West being the secular belief system or worldview and then the Judeo-Christian belief system. When you draw out the distinctions between the two, going back all the way to the origin stories, then on through ontology and teleology and anthropology and so on and so forth, and you you start to draw some conclusions at the end of kind of the logical progressions of these various assumptions about what it means to be human and the nature of the divine and so on, that one of the distinctions between the two belief systems is this idea of humanism versus a dependence upon God. And if the material world is all that we have, then we are left to our own devices, our own resources, that human thriving derives from human power. Uh, but if God created us and in the, in, in the reflections that we see in the scriptures are true and accurate, then we are deeply dependent creatures, Uh, and you see the ministry of the Spirit all throughout the scriptures and mankind's dependence upon God's agency and prayer being one of those points of connection between the divine and the terrestrial, between God and man, and the invitation we talked about last week, not just to intimacy and abiding, but beyond that to channeling God's agency and, and inviting heaven to earth whether it be through the miraculous or just any kind of God intervention, uh, prayer being one of the vehicles that God has given us to access that. So with that as a prelude, Drew, would you take it from there?
1: It's great, Mick. And um, first of all, apologize for the audio quality today, having some microphone issues. So hope that it's not too distracting. I appreciate you bringing up the way that prayer might conflict with our worldview and Um, I I was struck in several situations where I've noticed recently in certain groups that prayer is, I, I wouldn't say fully looked down upon, but definitely implied as being secondary. And where I've seen this the most is after certain national tragedies, you know, there's this kind of meme almost talking about thoughts and prayers where people have hid behind the idea of thoughts and prayers as an excuse to not take action to fix a problem. I'm not sure if anyone else has come across some of this. But it's kind of implied that believers, you know, we pray, but a lot of times what needs to happen is us to do something, you know, whether that's political engagement or rolling up our sleeves and getting about the business that's needed to actually bring about positive change in the world. And then prayer, you know, when people pray, that's almost seen as an excuse to not act. Now, here's where we have to be careful on this is I think there can be truth. You know, I I heard a story Uh, somebody shared, you know, they, uh, this person they knew prayed for God to feed the hungry. Then they hopped in their car and went out and found somebody who needed food and fed them a meal. They drove back home and then they thanked God for answering their prayer. Right. And I I think there is something profoundly Christian about us being willing to live with our lives, what we ask God for with prayer. And that gets back to this divine human participation that um, is so central to our walk with God. So I, I certainly agree with the idea that as, believers, if we do not act in the places where God has given us authority, power, strength or whatever to act, then we are missing something very central within our walk with God. But what I am concerned about is where prayer is seen as, as secondary action. And, you know, if you kind of play this out a lot, essentially what we're saying is prayer is the less reliable thing that I do when I have no other choice. And, I, you know, if we could go back into our episode last week, Maybe underneath that would be the utility of prayer is the way that it helps me to cope with situations in the world, or maybe even help somebody else to cope with situations in the world. So, you know, for example, Mick, if you had a problem, let's say you had a financial difficulty in your life and I offer to pray for you, what I'm doing and, and maybe how our world might understand the value of prayer is that I'm demonstrating to you a form of solidarity and providing you with something that might help you maintain some type of peace and security because you recognize that people are standing alongside of you. So there's a value in that. But if you were to take it further, I think most people in our world today would also say that my act of praying for you is not going to bring about any meaningful change to your financial situation. And so there's not really this anticipation or expectation of any form of divine action in this scenario. Now that makes, of course, a ton of sense if somebody is not a Christian, you know, they're agnostic, they're an atheist, something, you know, something of that sort. then you know, quite clearly, they're probably not going to believe in divine action. But I wonder, and I suspect if that same concept has also bled into Christian discourse, where prayer is seen as a substitute for action or as a lesser form than action. So to balance this all out, what I want to clearly say is as a Christian, if you see a need in the world and God has given you the ability to act then you should act in service to God's purposes and God's kingdom. Feed the hungry, provide for the poor, work for justice. Like don't don't hide behind prayer as an excuse not to act. But in the same breath, please also do not view prayer as a lesser activity. What we're saying is that the world needs more human action and divine action is somehow a, a consolation prize, a lesser form of action. I would argue Theologically, that what the world needs more than anything is divine action, and then those people in the world who align themselves with the purposes of God to likewise act. But it's really the work of God that will make the decisive difference. And what that should do for all of us is elevate the place of prayer to something that is central.
0: I think this crops up sometimes when I hear people say, and you just alluded to this, um uh, just reiterating what you just said, but you know, when somebody comes up against a wall and they say, well, I guess all that we have left to do is to pray. And that belies the, the place that we give prayer in kind of the rank of, of agency or, or of effectiveness of, you know, it's kind of the last resort when I think what you're talking about, Drew, is this partnership that we've talked about a lot in this podcast, this mysterious partnership where God has chosen to work in and through mankind to, to, to invite us into his into his work in the earth, and there's a real mystery there in terms of where does the responsibility of God begin and end, and where does the responsibility of man begin and end, and, you know, there are a lot of thoughts and opinions out there on that, uh, you know, from, we talked about this a little bit last week, and we'll get back into it when we talk about sovereignty and free will, but... There's a viewpoint that would place an, an abundantly heavy emphasis on the sovereignty of God, and understandably so, because that's very clear in Scripture, that God knows the beginning from the end, is sovereign over all creation. And yet you see this this faculty that God has given to mankind to act. We have a an effective range of our will, to use some of Dallas Willard's language, that makes us human, that he gives us dominion, that we have an ability to act in the world, and yet it is... You know, Jesus himself said he didn't do; he could do nothing of his own, but he only did what he saw the Father doing in John five. And so, if Jesus, being God, was that dependent, and then the imagery of the vine and the branches, and yeah, this this divine, mysterious partnership that we are utterly dependent on the life of God flowing in and through us, and yet we have this ability to act and to exercise our will in the world, uh, and it's worth pressing into. But I in a materialistic, naturalistic society, we're going to tend to lean towards the ability of mankind. Uh, And I think what I hear you saying, Drew, is you're calling attention to that, calling us back to a deeper awareness of of our innate dependency on God.
1: And that's a good segue, Mick, into how we want to frame today, is we want to engage in some theological reflection upon why prayer is so central to the Christian life. So maybe another way of looking at it, If last week we asked the question, what happens when we pray and we analyze different ways of interpreting what happens during prayer? This week, we're going to ask the question of what does prayer tell us about who God is and about human participation in God? So to dive into this, I I think it's helpful to go back into the Hebrew scriptures and look at God's relationship with Israel. And and you were hitting on this, Nick. Uh, To see, what does this tell us about how God has designed humanity to interact with him? And if you look at the history of Israel, you know, you have this this country that uh, essentially began as nomads and then for a formative part of their history were slaves and then were freed from slavery, but without really having a home and back into a type of nomadic lifestyle in the desert. So what you see is not a group of people that is particularly powerful. And I think this is an important thing to remember when we think of prayer. And I would wager that the vast majority of our podcast listeners are American or Western. And we might have a few of you who this is not your heritage, but most most people are in the United States listening to this. And we today are living from a place of incredible privilege and power. We have access to significant financial resources. And even if you're here today and it doesn't seem like you have a, a lot of money, I would say from a historical standpoint. You you certainly have access to resources that you need in in a more significant way than most people who've ever lived. You also have access to a significant amount of political power. And so once again, you know, you're sitting there thinking my vote is small, but you have a vote and you have a vote as a citizen of one of the most powerful countries to ever exist on the face of the earth. So your ability to affect change is pretty high. But most people in history have not had that, you know, they've had to basically accept life as it is. And they have constraints. They haven't had a lot of opportunity to overcome those constraints. They can't really see a problem in the world and think, all I need to do is vote differently or volunteer, and I can fix that problem. That has not been a realistic option for them. And I would argue that is the majority human experience throughout history is not one of people who have a tremendous amount of money and power. Now, in the West, we do. There's a positive side to that. And I think that's Um, incumbent upon us that we need to steward what has been given to us well. And as a Christian, we need to think through how do I take this privilege and this power that God has entrusted to me and put it in service to his kingdom. The negative side of it though, is that we train ourselves over time that any problem in the world has a human solution. And that goes back to this humanistic social imaginary that so pervades our culture. And I think, you know, I could look at the wisdom of the saints of old. I could look at the Hebrew scriptures. I could look at even God's election of Israel and say all of it points me to this reality that human power is not as significant as we Americans might be led to believe. I think we're a little too enamored in what we can do. And that causes us to miss this incredible theological reality that we are necessarily dependent upon God, all the things related to God's kingdom coming on this earth and the type of change that we long to see in our heart will not be achieved through human effort alone. We are invited in to participate with what God is doing, but we will not be the decisive factor in this participation. Instead, what prayer does is it orients us, it reminds us that if God alone does not act, then we will not see his kingdom come upon this earth. And obviously I'm drawing from the Lord's prayer and saying that. So back to Israel. To me, this is the significance of God choosing a nomadic and once enslaved group of people to be the location where he is going to reveal his glory. And if you were to just take a step back and look at a map, what you would notice is that to the south of Israel is Egypt. Obviously, that's where they were once enslaved, but Egypt continued and again remains a regional power. And for a long part of Egypt's history, it was one of the more significant places of power in the world and one of the strongest empires. And lasted millennia, um, it was eventually folded in with the different Greek kingdoms, but retained its power and authority into the Roman era. And then even still today, it, it's a significant country. To the north and to the east of Israel is where you have other great kingdoms. So early on the scene, you have the kingdom of Assyria. And there's this you know, long story or subplot in um, scripture talking about especially the northern kingdom and the conflict they had with the kingdom of Assyria. You have Babylon and Persia, which famously destroyed and sacked Jerusalem and conquered the temple. And then in later times, you have Greece and then eventually Rome. But you you kind of see Israel on a map is surrounded by empires. And the way the geography works, if you go to the east of Israel, you're in the middle of desolate, desert, hot, you know, not not the kind of place where it's easy to live. Um, If you go to the west, you have the Mediterranean Sea, and then you have these mountain ranges. So you have these very powerful empires surrounding Israel on all sides. Then you have this sliver of land that represents one of the only viable trade routes between them and a very strategic location for anybody who is looking to expand their empire. It collides in this tiny strip of land that we know as Israel. All of that sets the scene for a very shaky geopolitical existence, where Israel was always being threatened in some form or fashion by someone else who is more powerful than them. And I think that's really key for us to understand our relationship with God and ultimately our topic today, the significance of prayer, because the temptation that Israel faced throughout its history, I would wager more than idolatry or anything else was the temptation to seek its security through human means. And this is what happened. You know, you read the stories of the kings. We read it and we think, how could you set up these idol worshiping temples or how could you, you know, make these bad decisions? But often what they were doing is they were forging alliances. They were saying, we're this weak little country. We don't have a military that can withstand Egypt or Assyria or anybody else. And so the way that we survive is we build good relationships with friends that are more powerful than us. And part of doing business is we honor their gods. That's what they would ask for. And so will worship to their God and it's part of the treaty or we might intermarry with their clan, you know, whatever it takes to secure the alliance so that we can survive amongst these waves of empire that tend to surround us. And when you look at it from a political perspective, a lot of the action that Israel undertook that we in reading scripture would associate with them backsliding away from the covenant makes a heck of a lot of sense when you understand that they were doing these things for the sake of their own
0: survival. So what I hear you saying, Drew, is that Yeah, deeply embedded in the narrative of Scripture is this story of God choosing a weak entity to bear His glory in the earth, and part of that was likely by design, of course it was by design, uh, but maybe part of the design was in God showing his, His power through a weak vessel, and of course we, you know, thinking of New Testament Scriptures as well. In Israel being this relatively weak entity compared to the various superpowers that bordered it on all sides, by necessity, created this this dependence in them on God. And you see all the miraculous provision, the miraculous protection, the miraculous overcoming all throughout the, the scriptures as this priesthood, this national priesthood was to be the distributor of God's glory. And the the minister of reconciliation, if you will, to the world around them, and they were n- not to do that by empire building or by domination from the top down, but this kind of grassroots level up through this interdependent or this dependent relationship on God as a type and shadow of us as a you know as a, a priesthood today and the type of ministry that we have to the world out of a place of dependence. Is that an accurate kind of rephrasing of what you're saying?
1: Yes, and I think it is, Mick. And I think it's this. This concept of, is it human action ultimately that secures our place and our stability, or is it a dependency upon God to act on our behalf? In the case of Israel, they never really had enough power to be the ones, maybe in a way that a modern American might, uh, they didn't have access to that kind of power. That kind of power would have been housed in Rome, Assyria, in in different parts of the Greek world, and Egypt. Uh, but nonetheless, they still face that same temptation to ally themselves with those who had power for the sake of their own prosperity and survival. And I, I don't think we can judge them very much, because I would imagine that all of us are tempted to do the exact same thing. And I think it speaks to a human condition of do we actually trust God? Do we really believe that God is the one who acts on our behalf? Or when push comes to shove, is our trust and our faith in human power and human agency. The high water mark for Israel or one of the high watermarks in the monarchies of Israel is actually the King Omri of the Northern kingdom. And, you know, if you read the, the Bible, you wouldn't think that because he's not talked about in a positive light. And he is the father of Ahab, who is widely regarded as the low point of Israel's trust and dependency upon God. But, you know, maybe the high watermark of external power and influence is this King Omri. And what he did, you know, if he, as I've explained the situation with you, is he was great at making political alliances. So he actively sought to reduce tension with the tribes around Israel and, uh, you know, where maybe Israel's strict monotheistic worship led to, to challenges. He opened up the door for people who wanted to worship idols. So it's almost like this religious tolerance. And he sought alliances. And so he formed an alliance with Sidon and Tyre, which is these Phoenician states along the coast that were maritime powers. And that's ultimately through those types of alliances is how this King Ahab married this Syrophoenician woman named Jezebel. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll recognize that that story ends very poorly for everybody involved and is really the the, the very low point that eventually causes God to turn his back. Not just that one story, but is maybe indicative of what was going on at the Northern kingdom that caused them to fall away from God's blessing. However, when you see it through a kind of humanistic lens, Omri's actions make sense. Like why, when we're surrounded by empire, why do we need to be picking fights with these tribes around us purely based on religious reasons? Why can't we just get along with them and not worry so much about these distinctive religious things that we're trying to do? And it certainly makes sense in a, in a world where the way that you secure alliance is through marriage. And all of a sudden we have this opportunity to more or less double our power and influence by allying ourselves with this house of, of Sidon where I can marry my son off to this woman and all of a sudden now we're going to double our military power and our bargaining power when we have these existential threats on our borders. I mean, that makes so much sense to me. His actions, you know, in a way, if we use human logic, it's exactly the type of logic most of us operate our lives with is these are the types of things you have to do. And it involves a little bit of compromise, but the compromise is worth it because it's securing our future. At least so goes that line of thinking. Now, if you keep reading the biblical story, you'll find that it's with Jezebel in particular, but Ahab, her husband, ultimately they go from tolerating these idol worshiping cults to then introducing it into Israel as a legitimate option and ultimately persecuting the people of God. And then, um, you know, the story goes, Jezebel meets this gruesome fate is eaten by dogs, you know, as she's killed. And I mean, it's just really uh, a sad story. But how they got there is actually pretty predictable. And I would say the normal way of human operation is we gravitate towards the type of power that we can control. So you have Israel, this very weak group of people that have no homeland and are completely dependent up against the most powerful empire the world had ever seen. And yet the story is that God chose Israel and through his mighty hand, delivered them from the very worst of human power and eventually set them free and establish them in their own land. And that's the story of remembrance that is supposed to shape the rest of Israel's identity. That we don't need Egypt. We don't need Babylon. We don't need Rome. Instead, what we need is a posture of faithfulness and dependency upon God. And then he will be the one who turns around and fights our battles there is action involved in this story. Israel is expected to maintain covenant faithfulness to God. And Israel is expected to reflect the character of God, even in the way they treat one another and work for justice with their hands and farm their fields and do all this stuff. So it doesn't, you know, back to where we started this episode, it doesn't let Israel off the hook for any form of human action. But instead, what's supposed to happen with these stories is to remind them that God alone is their source and their strength. And it's entrusted in him that they find their deliverance, not in human power and human authority. So let's take this whole concept and pull it into the New Testament. We just talked about Jezebel. There is a story in the ministry of Jesus, you can find it in the Gospel of Luke, that I think is a powerful parallel. And it's the story of Jesus and a Syrophoenician woman. And the story goes that there is this woman who comes up to Jesus looking for a miracle. And she's not Uh, obviously she's not jewish and so jesus tells her like i'm not coming to you you know and she presses in further and he, he says this quote that to a modern reader is very offensive he says it's not right to take the children's food and give it to the dogs you know to us that sounds like a very racist comment um if you actually pull it into conversation with what's going on in scripture this is an echo of the story of jezebel jezebel was eaten by the wild dogs and so we're recalling that story you know into a Jewish reader or listener, that would have brought this to mind. You know, you have this villain from the Old Testament, and we're reminded of this villain. But in this case, what the woman does is rather than get offended and walk away, she says, even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the children's food. And suddenly the scene shifts, and Jesus says, I have not found faith like this even in Israel. In other words, to pull that into our conversation today, this woman understood the lesson that most of Israel had forgotten. And of course, that's across this backdrop in the New Testament of this type of faith and access to God no longer being limited to those who are ethnically of Israel, but are now available to all the Gentiles. That's the point of why that story is in there in Luke's gospel is it's this expansion of God's purposes into the Gentiles. But there's also this reflection for our topic today. This woman got it. She got it that what she needed in that moment was not more human agency, but she needed the deliverance of God. And she saw in Jesus someone who was able to provide for her. So she put her faith in him because she knew that he alone was her source. And so in a way, this Syrophoenician woman went from being the villain of the Old Testament to being the hero of the New Testament because she understood that God's design for humanity is that we have faith and dependency in him.
0: That's a really cool analysis, Drew. I, I have n- never heard that New Testament story about the Syrophoenician woman connected to the story of Jezebel, but it makes sense and kind of connects those two themes from the Old Testament to the New Testament and the the upside-down nature of God's economy when it comes to understanding power, uh, or, or you know, like you talk about, you read the history of Israel and Omri represents this high point, and yet he barely gets a mention in the Old Testament, and, whereas... Uh, these other kings, Josiah and Hezekiah and others, get you know pages and pages, though geopolitically they were relatively insignificant, and I think that's a, a little window into the economy of God. And I just wondered, you know, I look around today and you look at people who have tremendous amounts of power, whether it's financial power, political power, and we see that, we live in that, that's the water that we swim in, those are the, the, the context and the people that rise to the top you know, in our daily lives. And yet in the economy of God, I just, I wonder if we could kind of put on, you know, the different lens that could enable us to see with God's economy who the truly wealthy are, who the truly powerful are. Yeah, I often think there will be in, you know, in heaven, on the new earth, when all this shakes out. And, you know, this takes, of course, this takes a lens of faith. And the analytical side of me hears this talk and is like, wow, this is just wishful thinking. But really, this is the teaching of Scripture. If we call ourselves Christians, I mean, this really is the theme of Scripture, this idea of, to use Marty Solomon's language, the, the story of empire versus the story of shalom, that the way of the world is empire-building, to let's make a name for ourselves, whereas the, the story of, of God is this, this story of shalom, of restoring peace, of order, of, of glory, of right relationship which requires trusting his story. Um, it's why we begin with Sabbath, that the seventh day stands out. And it's commanded that we'd practice this Sabbath to recognize that we're dependent on God's provision, on God's protection, on God's leadership. And yeah, just look around today, I just wonder, like, who are those individuals that are completely passed over today, and yet they p- possess tremendous spiritual power through a life that's hidden in God and And a life of prayer and a life of deep trust and commitment to God and his purposes. I think it's a a point of reflection for all of us.
1: And that's a good place to round the corner because prayer ultimately is us aligning ourselves under God back into the order of how humanity was always supposed to function, which is a dependency upon him. And the Lord's Prayer provides a great template for this because we are acknowledging that ultimately we need God to be the one who establishes his kingdom. So the shalom, the peace that we all long for is not something that we can bring about apart from him. We need God to provide for us. And so it gets into the realm of our daily needs. And we need God to forgive us and to redeem us and to restore us back into relationship. And ultimately we need God to deliver us from the evil that comes up against us. And so as we're praying this, it's this consistent reminder that the deepest elements of our humanity and God's purposes in the world cannot be accomplished apart from God. And sometimes God's action is occurring beyond us in you know, through these cosmic events. And sometimes God's action is occurring within us, working redemption or sanctification or whatever the case may be. But if God is not acting and moving, then we will never be able to achieve the things that he created us for and the things that we long for. So if you, take, if you take that comment and then you add to it what we talked about last week, the perspective that I would hold that something happens in prayer where God acts in a way that he would have not otherwise, not because of a limitation within God and not in any type of mechanical sense where it's always a one plus one equals two action, but nevertheless, that God has ordained it, that humanity partner with him in the place of prayer and in some mysterious way, that then is a driving force behind the actions of God. You can start to see why prayer is such a big thing and why we should be concerned by any attempt to marginalize prayer as a lesser work. I don't think it's right for a Christian to put prayer up and against human action and deem prayer to be inferior. We should never make prayer a substitute for action where God has indeed called us to or given us authority to act, but to limit prayer as just the thing we do when stuff gets really bad or we have no other options minimizes the incredible powerful partnership that is available to humanity through meeting with god in the place of prayer and the authority that we have as believers and ultimately it takes us all the way back to the garden of eden where humanity is created with this priestly kingly role we are regents on the earth acting on behalf of god we are priests mediating the presence and the worship of God to the earth. You know, we have this incredible responsibility to tend the garden and allow it ultimately to spread across the earth and create the earth as this habitation of the presence of God. You know, I mean, that's the type of in- imagery that we see in Genesis one and two. And ultimately that was never intended to be wielded apart from the power of God. And that's my reading at least of Genesis three original sin is humanity usurping our place instead of God, where We wanted to be our own gods. We wanted to have our own authority. We wanted to act outside of his authority using our own power and our own agency. And I see that as the origin, at least in many ways, of original sin. And I think it's still what drives so much of the disorder and sin in the world today. Prayer brings everything back into alignment. It's our confession before God that doing things our way, that the Genesis 3 lifestyle only leads to desolation and death, and that ultimately it's the posture of prayer proclaiming the kingdom of the Lord to be done on earth as it is in heaven and looking to him for our needs. That is humanity coming into alignment of how God created us to be. So I, I pray these reflections help you today and ultimately point you back to the significance and the primacy of prayer as in no way a lesser part of the Christian walk, but I think you could even make the case that prayer is the work and it's the work ultimately that brings about change because prayer is the place in which we come into agreement with God so that we actually have power to tackle the problems that face us in the world today. Often those problems are also going to require tremendous sacrifice and action on our part, but our sacrifice and action apart from the power of God will ultimately prove to be futile. And that's what prayer teaches us. And the cool thing about prayer is that you don't have to have a lot of human power to make a difference. It's not just the Americans who have a lot of money and education or whatever. It's not the 1%, but prayer gives all believers access. And I imagine when we can stand in eternity and look in history, we're going to see it's those who prayed, often nondescript poor believers who the world did not notice will be the ones who ultimately got to see the change happen in the world, not because of their action, but because they entered into this participation with God. And I think that's probably the testimony that we would see around the world today believers who will probably never know their names, but they learned how to meet with God in prayer. So I pray that motivates you in your own prayer life this week, and that these reflections point us back to getting on our knees before a
0: living God. That's a great word, Drew. I pray that these thoughts today would cause us all to just reflect on our deep need and dependence for God and the invitation to partner with Him in this beautifully mysterious way. And uh, thank you for tuning in to Ideology, and we will catch you next week.